0: the Michigan. this is a race with
1: the From quantum physics to poetry, from neuroscience to geography, from philosophy to immersive realities, Building 21 is a space where one can explore, play with, manipulate, bend, break, and probe the multifaceted dimensions of ideas, knowledge, and thinking.
0: Jonathan Ledgerd is director of Rossums, a new studio that seeks to identify technology opportunities for poorer communities. He was director of the Future Africa Initiative at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology until 2016. Since 2012, he has led a consortium of leading roboticists, architects, and logisticians that seeks to build the first drone port in the world in Africa. Jonathan Ledgerd is a leading thinker on advanced technology, risk, and nature in emerging economies. He spent two decades as an award-winning frontline foreign correspondent for The Economist, reporting lead stories from over 50 countries and several wars. His second novel, Submergence, a New York Times Book of the Year, is presently being adapted for Hollywood by Vim Vindas.
1: Okay, so uh, no. my name is Olivier, as you know, because we've uh, we've uh, corresponded together. Uh, and I'll oh, let uh, Damien and Rebecca introduce themselves.
2: Sure, so my name's Damien. Um, I'm working uh, for and, and with Olivier on this uh, Radical Futures series. So I'll just be here uh, asking you some questions and enjoying the conversation. And, and you what's your
3: background? What's your academic background?
2: I'm just an undergraduate here at McGill. I'm finishing up a degree in anthropology and philosophy. Yeah.
3: And hello, Jonathan. My name is Rebecca.
2: Hi,
3: Rebecca. Hi. I've been a big fan of yours since reading your New Yorker article and oh, it's really an honor to be able to talk to you today.
4: And you're also an undergrad at McGill? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes,
3: so my academic path is that I started my undergrad in 2010. I did two out of 3 years and was very dissatisfied with my education, so I left. And things that I did when I left school was get involved in a nonprofit that was trying to change um STEM education in Mali in West Africa. We ended up starting a big robotics center there. Um, wow. so that's well, is that in
4: Bam- Bamako? In Bamako, yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah. We started that's cool. in Dakar and, and Bamako and then what's kind of left now is mainly in, in Mali and in Bamako. Uh-huh. But so your professional path really um speaks to me a lot. So
1: when when after Rebecca read the article, she came to see me and said, We've got to talk to this guy. <laughs> We've got to talk to this guy. This is just too amazing. And she said, "How do we do this?" I said, "Well, we'll just, you know, write to him <laughs> and see if he, you know, answers." And you know, Rebecca didn't didn't believe me. It's <laughs> actually what happened. So, actually, thank you so much for getting back to us. Uh, yeah,
4: long so I'm a very uh, evangelical about certain things, very reclusive <laughs> about other things. But uh, about in radical futures, I'm very evangelical. <laughs> uh, yeah. So.
3: Another thing that unites the three of us, Olivia as a professor and David and I as students, are that we are part of um, something called Building 21 at McGill, which is, for lack of a better kind of way of explaining, it, it's kind of an intellectual playground. It's space for very unusual kind of innovative thinking on campus. And we provide basically research funding for students from their undergrad to their PhD level to pursue interdisciplinary, unusual, kind of in, in your way, kind of naively curious research, because I really feel that that's important, that it needs support in a, in a very siloed and very fractured university. Oh, that's run. fantastic. Uh, so maybe can we ask you for a couple of minutes maybe to introduce yourself?
4: Yeah, of course. I'm uh, Scottish. I was born in the very north of Scotland in the uh, Shetland Island. I spent Half of my, well, over half of my career as just a traditional foreign correspondent, a war correspondent for the Economist newspaper in London. But I was always based abroad and reported in the Americas, in Asia, a lot as a former communist lock. And uh, obviously, uh, I spent a decade in Africa. And most of my present work is, uh, is based in Africa, but I'm really more broadly interested in the, let's say the equatorial bells of the planet. And I'm really consumed and interested in, uh, technology solutions that can potentially scale in poorer communities in the tropics. Particularly solutions which also might have a positive upside for the natural world as well. And my thinking is very much conditioned by an understanding of where we are going uh, as a species in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And it's going to be, you know, very exciting on one hand from the technology side, but. you know, very stressful for our biosphere and the political systems uh, on the other side. So I, I think what we can say out of this conversation, which is certain, is that if we come through the next 30 years more or less intact as a species and we keep most of our biodiversity intact, it will be because we've managed to put in place some radical new thinking. Some of that, obviously, will be political. A lot will be uh, to do with questions of social justice, you know, particular gender uh, equity. So, you know, you have to really take care of the rights of young women and women more broadly in poorer countries. But then the other part is, which I guess we should talk about, is, you know, maybe there will be some new technolo- technology solutions w- which have some promise. So that's basically where I am. And, and I suppose the final thing to say is, you know, I have a completely other life as, as a novelist and mm-hmm. as somebody who works a lot with conceptual artists. So I'm very comfortable moving in this space of imagination. I tend to try and ground everything I do in at least the plausible. <laughs> mm-hmm. Whether or not that all of these initiatives succeed, is not the, the critical point. The point is to be searching for the things which are uh, potentially scalable. That that's my major opportunity.
1: <laughs> for all of our uh, listeners, I would I strongly, strongly recommend your latest book, Submergence. It's absolutely beautiful. It's haunting. It's beautiful. It was it was really a pleasure reading it. So, thanks, Olivia. That's very kind. It was really it was like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. I told Rebecca, you have to it's read It's on book. my
3: list. I haven't gotten to it yet, but it's my Christmas reading for sure. I-
1: so, on, in our article in the New Yorker, you say, you said something that uh, I think um, uh, sort of follows from what you've just said. You, you said in, our, in that article, in response to the world's wicked problem, Imagination at scale is our only recourse, and we thought that was really, really interesting. Could you expand on this a bit?
4: I think the conventional solutions that we have, uh, either from the development community side or from uh, the economic models that we're presently operating it with, are clearly not fit for purpose or survival of our species or other species. Obviously, your great, uh, Canadian, Vatslav uh, Smill, uh, you might know, now Professor Emeritus at the University of Manitoba. He describes this very well. We call we it a growth economy and a society and political structure, which is addicted to growth, but our biosphere has very strict limits and uh obviously, we're moving as a species from something like seven point seven seven point eight billion humans today to you know between nine point six and nine point eight billion humans in in twenty fifty and pressures that are coming on us will only be solved by radically new thinking at the same time i and this is a more subtle point, which maybe we can expand on, but, uh, I think the imagination, uh, question, uh, it, it is broader than simply, you know, metrics and applications of new technologies. It's about perhaps having a, a slightly different focus, uh, about, you know, what it means to be alive on, on, on a crowded mm-hmm. planet in the 21st century. So, At the moment, I've been thinking a lot about other species and other life forms with which we cohabit this planet. And I have to say it's been really uh, an extraordinarily interesting uh, exploration where you actually realize that you might actually start to develop entirely new value systems. So, So one of the areas of imagination to explore is can we be less anthropocentric? So can we think about other biological life forms? At the same time, can we think about what machine intelligence might look like and what that might be? I would say that in my sort of imagineering, if I can use that word, I'm only really, really interested in the near future. I'm not interested in tomorrow, and I really have no interest in anything above seven, eight years out so I'm not sort of a deep futurist, but my focus is really what could we put in place and seed in a two- to seven-year time span and see whether some of these ideas could actually scale. It's a much bigger topic, for me, you know, from a novel, novelistic point of view. But I think if I have one common thread for my thinking, it's about perspective. So you need to have a really strong sense of perspective about, you know, where we are <laughs> as a planet, but in this galaxy, even I can say that, but also like where we are at this point in time. I mean, uh, I'm constantly amazed uh, at the amount that we, we as humans are able to absorb without, you know, reflecting on it. In, in a sort of wondrous or anonymous way. You know, I mean, like when Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth ascended the throne, Africa had what, 118 million people? And by 2050, there'll be over 2.2 billion people <laughs> in one century. You just have this sort of human acceleration, which is extraordinary. Or if we think about these other species, when I was born 1970, there were twice as many wild animals on the planet as there are now. <laughs> so, yeah. they, well, of course, we can go on ad infinitum about these facts. But the, the key point is we are living, we are definitely living in an extraordinary uh, defining moment. And unless we apply imagination in this moment, uh, we, we will not uh, have a happy outcome.
2: Just on that thread, I'm curious about uh, the role of uh, fiction and consulting with artists. Um, I know that, like you've worked with a lot of architects, and I think that, like, they're a great example of people who, you know, they're engineers, but they're also kind of artists. And a lot of the times, you know, they're influenced by philosophy and literature. And you know, what's the role of of fiction and kind of unbounded creativity in you know meeting the very sort of tangible goals you're interested in over the next six, seven years?
4: Well, I would have to say that the fiction for me is. Quite separate endeavor. So I, I would almost say that they are different forms of imagination. You know, I've been a visiting professor the last year or so in artificial intelligence. So I spend a lot of my time, half of my time, I would say, with artificial intelligence scientists and with big companies like, you know, Google DeepMind and Microsoft Research and, and these sort of big players. Uh, something kind of struck me very early in that exploration was that things which were quite well worked on by conceptual artists were utterly untouched by artificial intelligence engineers. You know, for example, what does it mean to have a human body? What does it mean to have a body? Well, uh, how how you orientated in space, you know, ephemerality, you know, There's a lot of uh, questions like this which artists have been exploring for a long time, which are clearly central to the evolution of artificial intelligence, but these engineers haven't really thought of them at all. So with the with the artists that I work with, it's a really rich collaboration because you know they've been thinking about questions which are really central and living and very profound and so they're, they're actually going to be informing or one would like to see them informing the evolution of of machine intelligence but the fiction i i sort of keep separate um the novel i'm working on at the moment is set in the late roman empire so mm-hmm. it may or may not have any <laughs> bearing on our present situation mm-hmm.
3: I must say, I'm really looking forward to your collaboration with Olafur Eliasson. Um, The deep ocean kind of emergent experience sounds, it sounds beautiful, and it sounds like another way to kind of take the human outside of just the human perspective. I mean, that
4: is a really good example of what I mean about perspective, because, you know, the deep ocean, you know, is the dominant It's a much larger living space in our biosphere than the terrestrial space. I mean, just the deep ocean is just vast. And it's utterly unexplored. It's really hard for humans to look at it. Uh, If you think about the deep ocean, you're probably just imagining a submersible going down and touching the ocean floor. But actually, what what is really interesting in Deep Ocean is this several kilometers of just darkness from which no photons of light uh, penetrate whatsoever. And then, you know, there's sort of microbial life down there, which probably weighs more than the collective weight of life on the surface of the planet. And it, it, what is interesting with the artificial intelligence, it, which I didn't really grasp at the beginning, but beginning to now, is that it, it might give us new tools and new ways of perceiving the, the natural world because it's just more patient. So, one of the ideas that we have is, is to put an artificial intelligence really deep into the ocean, four or 5,000 meters. And just let it be there, trying to perceive the slices, movement, the current. Mm-hmm. And uh, the sense of time down there is obviously very different from right. it is on the surface. So uh, a microbe in you know 5,000 meters deep water can survive for years. And on the surface of the planet, it might survive for 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, very much another world. In our world, and yeah, so with all the four, that that's certainly a very, very interesting, exciting project.
1: So that's exactly what you explore in the book *Submergence*, right? So exploration of the absolute depth of the ocean. It seems to me that uh, reading the book, there's this haunting. It's very melancholic. Uh, your female character seems to me never reaches what she's really looking for in that. So that's, there's this haunting place, which is the depth of the ocean, which talks to human beings. There's a sort of relationship, but there's also this impossibility to, to feel exactly you know the uh, the sort of the sense, the essence of that place. And it's as if your you know, their female character always, even though she wants to be completely immersed and it never really reaches that state. And I felt a deep sadness in her. Trying to reach is sort of understanding. Am, am I am I reading it this right?
4: I, I think there's many ways to read it, and that that will certainly be one way to read it. I think they. I think there is a, a melancholy. You always remember when you're a child and you look at a fruit fly or some other very short-lived insect, and you think, "Oh, how sad for that insect that's around for." It's a few days, and the, the life cycle is so short. And what you start perceiving uh, when you get into ocean science or indeed any kind of geoscience is that actually we humans, you know, fruit fly time frame as well. <laughs> I mean, we, our lives are very, very short. And that, I think, was what I was trying to explore in, emergence is the, the idea that people existing on the kind of burning bright surface of the planet, you know, are, are only here fleetingly. And yet, you know, our actions, and whether we fall in love or so on, are indelible, you know, they, they persist across uh, and outside of time. But at the same time, there are these
0: areas on the
4: planet. the planet itself it it has this whole other time structure and a whole other scale which is so far beyond the human civilization and um, what we have accomplished or will accomplish and i I was very very interested in that combination and you know when i talk about thinking about other life forms and other species there's something which comes up in my mind all the time you know i mean uh, Looking at species which have been on the planet for 20, 30, 50 million years, uh, which is sort of disappearing in our lifetime and, and that the time element of that and the ethics of that destruction become quite severe and thought provoking, uh, I think.
1: Something else we sort of wanted to explore is also this really interesting comment you made again in that article where, where you mentioned something about, you know, human greed being harvested to sort of mm-hmm. you know, save a planet as a natural resource. That was an absolutely extraordinary idea and completely original, but it wasn't really, uh, really, really expanded in the article. Could you say a word or two about
4: this? Yeah, I think this is um, kind of relatively simple idea to get across, which is that uh, most of the biodiversity on the planet, so, you know, there's a kind of thermal gradient to the complexity of life on the planet. So if you go from uh, the uh, Nunavut, you know, way even up to the North Pole, then you get to Nunavut, then you get to northern Quebec, then you go out to Montreal. By the time you get to Montreal, you've got, Little bit of biodiversity, you probably have 50, 60, 80 tree species. And as you continue to to go down the planet towards the tropics, you know, obviously biodiversity increases through all this complex, precious uh, life forms of bird life and, and even microbial life in the soil and so on and so forth. So if we actually pull back and look at a planetary basis, You'd say, well, actually, it's between the Tropic of Capricorn and the Tropic of Cancer where most of the biodiversity on the planet. Now, I don't say the biomass, because obviously in Canada or in Russia, you do have a lot of biomass, but it's not very diverse, you know. So it, as you head down to the Tropic, it becomes more valuable. But just in the same way that sort of insect populations have, have bloomed there and beautiful orchids and rainforest and so on, you just have very, very large human populations. The simple point is with so many humans living in very fragile economies, unless you can develop systems which can economically compensate those people who are living next to the most of the biodiversity uh, for better stewardship, then these other life forms won't survive. So, and, and a really crude way of saying it is for another species, unless that other species can pay, it won't be allowed to stay. And that's the reality of that. And of course, within the conservation community and um, Green Party politics, which we have here in Europe, this is a somewhat contentious idea that, that, that the economy is so important. Some people would worry about putting price on other species and so on and so forth. But I think in this sense, you have to develop the ability to pay local people. But then when it gets really interesting is, is to think, well, on a planetary basis, if I'm living in Shanghai, I'm living in Vancouver, and I'm living in Glasgow, wherever, is there a mechanism for me to pay? You know small amounts of money into a, a mechanism that will actually remove what those people in the, in the tropics for being better students other life forms and that is something that we're working really hard on and, and exploring and seeing whether it's possible to to create such a system which essentially would allow money to pass from humans to non-human life forms and using forms of artificial intelligence and human that these, these other life forms would be able to to hold that financial value and then spend it on, on the services that they needed for their survival. And, you know, is it purely about greed? I mean, I think it's about interest maybe not even self-interest I think it's more like mad interest you know it's like how the I think a lot of humans are uh genuinely want to do the right thing but they don't always have we need the social right
3: mechanisms that that yeah priority exactly. to, to yeah conservation yeah
2: Mm. Uh, I'm curious about this, this idea of of looking to the, to the non-human to find solutions for what are at least problems caused by humans and, you know, problems that, you know, affect humans and and non-humans equally, so to speak, you know, like in a lot of these, these sort of dialogues, and this is something that in studying anthropology, there's a, there's a large kind of post-humanist transhumanist literature now that's trying to do this very kind of ambition in that there's an anxiety that the episteme, if I can call upon that concept. Is very human, and so the way that we can expand our imagination is turning to sort of uh, you know non-human forms of life and ecosystems and so on. So I'm wondering, like, what sort of lessons have you taken from your consideration of you know the deep ocean, the insects, the non-human things that that you kind of cite as an boars. opportunity? Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
4: I mean, I think there is definitely a, a whole rich uh, exploration to be had uh, through anthropology and through animal rights movements and so on. I think I'm taking a a slightly more romantic and maybe slightly more radical view, which is let's see if I can articulate it you know, if we look at Elon Musk and the the Silicon Valley (laughs) who want to colonize space starting with the moon and getting off to Mars I think in the 21st century, we are going to fail to colonize our near space. And we know from exoplanetary exploration, you know, habitable planets and nearby star systems that it's going to be centuries before starships are built, uh, which are capable of taking Us or whatever we become uh, out there, you know. So, I think what we will see in in the 2020s and the 2030s, because of all these biological and and political pressures that come on the human civilization, we will see that we're not going to be able to colonize space and, and do this kind of Star Trek jump off the planet, and then. Something weird will happen, which is that we'll actually start looking at the fact that we are lost in space with countless sentient life forms. Mm. <laughs> and of course, we have a whole field of science and study, you know, about these other species. But I think it's different. I think we will look at them slightly with a new curiosity and a new sense of wonder obviously we'll be pushed again in that direction by the fact that we are, Obviously, I'm personally not a believer in any artificial general intelligence in the near future. Maybe, you know, uh, in 50, 60 years' time or 100 years' time, we might see that. But nevertheless, even this collection of narrow artificial intelligences that we have now, in their aggregation, they do challenge us as a species, and so I just think we will turn towards the natural world, uh, both in order to save it and in order to know more about ourselves. And I think that's probably going to be one of the primary explorations uh, of the next couple of decades: the development of, uh, if I can call it that, interspecies services. You know, so we actually start trying to explore communicating with uh, other species in different ways, and just providing services to other species. And this is directly connected to this larger question of, uh, you know, what happens in these tropical areas of the planet.
1: So, I think I think we're probably close to the last question. Let Let's sort of let's sort of end with positive notes here. Let's let's play a little game. Let's say we're in twenty fifty or twenty sixty and twenty or twenty seventy, and we're not only uh, surviving, but we are. And when I say we, it's both humans and the environment and all living beings. We're not only surviving, but we are thriving. So, what have we done right?
3: Hmm.
4: Oh, that's such a great question. Yeah, fantastic question. Yeah, what have we done right? Well, first of all, I should say that. Um, I'm definitely not a dystopian, uh, thinker. I'm an, I'm a really optimistic. I really think we can actually turn this around, um, provided we apply, you know, rigor and imagination. But one of the key things that we, we have to do right is to move. Obviously we need to move towards the sharing economy, circular economy, so that all of our material could uh, just work a lot harder but I think the main thing that we will have achieved if things go well uh, will be to move entirely towards a more experiential way of living so that of course people still travel, they're on and so on and so forth but it's really uh, about the experiences that you accrue in your life and your not your material possessions, and the implication of that would be to kill a whole branch of economics, which is based on, <laughs> you know, GDP growth. And again, I would urge you to read a Vlasto Smil's book on growth, which really addresses this point very squarely. Uh, which is, you know, if we are wedded politically, culturally, socially towards a growth model in a fixed biosphere, we are fated to mortally damage ourselves. Uh, So we have to uncouple from growth. So, you know, more experiential thinking, uh, uncoupling from growth, that's probably the key thing.
3: Can I just ask you what keeps you positive? What keeps you curious in a way that doesn't fall into kind of dystopic nightmares?
4: It took me a long time to realise that pessimism is a redundant quality. It has no value (laughs) and no utility (laughs) whatsoever. Love it. But if you use the analogy that we're all four of us in a canoe heading down towards the Niagara Falls, we, you know, there is that moment before a very large waterfall when I don't actually know the physics of it. I suppose the water genuinely does slow down but it, it, at least the perception is the water slows down the heading towards the waterfall, so you see in the distance the spume of the waterfall and so on. And then you think, you know, well, how are we going to react? You know, we could all panic, start weeping, and throw the oars out of the canoe. <laughs> right. You know, but I feel like the, the more rational approach is methodically paddle towards the shore, you know. We may or may not get there, but, uh, you know. So that's part of it, is that there's no utility to be pessimistic. But the other part is I genuinely think it's true we don't have any more slack in our ecology, you know. Our biological situation is of uh, soil fertility uh, in terms of too much livestock on the planet, obviously in terms of climate change. And potential trigger events of climate change. All of those in any of that, we really are in an emergency situation there. the other side uh, of society, of politics, of technology, there is a lot of slack. There's a lot of things. Simply by reverting to how Canadians lived in 1958, just if we reverted to the economic level that, you know, Canada out yeah, in 1958, but with really epic uh, healthcare and you know very high quality internet uh, and advances in AI and so on and so forth. It now is enough. It will be enough to get us through 2080, 2090. We should have worked through renewable energy, you know, renewable energy, you know, on a high level and learning how to distribute it affordably and, and reliably. So I think there are a lot of really positive reasons. And I think, like a lot of the neuroses that we have now politically, I think a lot of that is like the early stage of social media and when we still haven't acknowledged that we, you know, humans are a lot little eggs and we're very, very easy to hack. Right. <laughs> and, right. and I think we'll get comfortable with that fact we'll start acknowledging that fact Mm. and our laws and our politics will catch up to that fact so I think that for all those reasons there's some abundant reasons to be hopeful and positive but the key point is that we, the models we presently have are not fit for purpose they will not get us through this squeeze and they will not get very portabilities on the planet through this squeeze and they will not get other life forms, uh, which have been around far longer than us through this, this squeeze. So, we definitely need more radical uh, thinking and, and lots of students at McGill to uh, abandon their silos and actually, yes. you know, explore in different directions. When I left The Economist, I went to the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, which is kind of like a Caltech. Mm -hmm. I mean, even more than, like, let's say, if you have to see Waterloo or something, it's really, really narrow. Uh, And that was really rich for me to be just with mathematicians and Mm -hmm. physicists Mm -hmm. and biologists and computer scientists. It really helped me a lot in terms of the conversations they had. So I think that cross-disciplinary work is incredibly valuable. Excellent.
1: All right. So this was... Really, really as good as we had expected. Thank you so much, John. Thank you so
3: much.
4: So it was wonderful to chat and Likewise. uh you know, great luck with your work. Thank you. And uh look forward to uh seeing the audio when you have it.
2: Great. All right excellent. Thanks
4: hey.
1: so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey. Bye-bye.
4: Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye.